And let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, today we come into your presence and we have sung of your glories as they are seen clearly in the world in which you have created. Truly, Father, the heavens are telling your glory. They proclaim your majesty and your greatness. And Father, as we see today, there is rain falling from heaven, Lord. May your word be like that rain. Father, you've actually promised that your word is like the rain, that it goes forth to its place. It accomplishes that for which you have intended. Just as the rain causes the plants to grow, so, Father, your word comes to bring life and growth to your people. Father, we have prayed that you would search us in song. Father, I pray, Lord, that that would not just have been words sung to a tune, but that would be the desire of every person here today. Father, your word is a sharp, two-edged sword. It is the means by which you pierce to the depths of our hearts, the dividing of the joints and marrow, And Father, it is through Your Word that it discerns the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Father, You do not just simply want our actions. You want our hearts. You want all that we are. Not that we obey You to earn righteousness, but we obey You because we love You supremely. So, Father, work in our midst by Your Spirit. May Your Word be and do that which You have promised it to be and to do. May it truly search us, try us, show us the areas in which there are wicked ways within us. May we turn aside from that wickedness and seek to be more like Your Son. Thank you that you have spoken in your word. We pray all this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And we're again continuing in this theme of 2 Peter that there is power for pilgrims found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we again... Take that from chapter 1, verse 3, that God's divine power has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. And that power gives us all that we need through the knowledge of Him, through the knowledge of Christ. And so as we have worked through chapter 1, we're now delving into chapter 2 and we are looking at these warnings that Peter gives to pilgrims, particularly warnings against false teaching. And so what we see and saw, I don't know, I guess it's been five weeks or whatever. I was sick and we haven't been back to it. And I preached on Ro- in Romans last week, but we looked at several weeks ago, the methods of false teachers. And we saw in verses, particularly verses one through three, that the methods of false teachers are that which depend on human effort, 
that which uses division, division and deception, that teaches sinful indulgence, that we can go ahead and indulge in the sinful activities of the flesh, and that they, that they do all of this so that they could exploit the church for greedy gain. And so it's important for us to keep in mind these methods that we not be led astray or taken captive by them. And so what we're going to look at this morning is now we've seen their methods. What are the consequences for false teachers? Is it really that big of a deal or should we truly be warned about false teaching? Does doctrine matter? And the answer resoundingly in this passage and throughout the New Testament is what? Does doctrine matter? Yes, immensely so. You know, we uh, are familiar with the fact that it is against the law to counterfeit um, currency, right? Uh, Hopefully nobody here is involved in a counterfeiting operation. Uh, Probably not the wisest thing to do. You know what what the penalty is for counterfeiting money? It is a fine of up to, it's a felony offense, first of all, It's a fine of up to $15,000 and a prison sentence of 15 years. So before you stick that dollar bill in your copier at home, that's what happens when you counterfeit money. Now, why why is counterfeiting such a big deal? Why are the penalties so severe? Well, because counterfeiters exploit people. They give them fake money, money that has no value to it, and they oftentimes will receive goods or services as a result of that, and then it's no good. They end up exploiting people, passing off that which is fake as genuine. And the law comes down hard on them. Now, I don't think anybody here would argue that counterfeiting is really no big deal especially if you've ever received or had a counterfeit bill. You know, I, thankfully, by God's grace, I've never had a, a counterfeit bill, but I've talked to people who said, yeah, I had got this counterfeit $100 bill, and I essentially lost $100. It's a big deal. Now, I, I think if we understand that, that particularly in that realm, we make a big deal out of counterfeiting money, how much more should we make out of the counterfeiting of the faith? I think that's why, to, to some degree, we, we can be very tempted to think, well, doctrine, you know, we don't like to talk about doctrine. We don't like to talk about teaching because doctrine divides, right? It causes schisms and it causes differences among God's people. And after all, aren't we supposed to seek unity? Aren't we supposed to seek to be together as the body of Christ? I mean, isn't that what we're for? And so we live, particularly in a day and age in which doctrine is sort of Poo-pooed. It's not a big deal. We don't want to talk about doctrine. Let's just, let's just sort of go about our lives and, and love each other and, and be together as the church. That's sort of the message that we hear from supposedly evangelical churches today. But what we see Peter warning against, and particularly the consequences he gives for false teaching and how severe they are, that should warn us to stay away from it. That doctrine does matter. And because Christ brings severe consequences on false teachers, we must reject 
their teachings and their ways. Look with me in 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 10, but we'll mainly be looking at, ver- at the end of verses 3 through um, the halfway through verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 2, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift, what? Destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. There are three things I'd like us to consider this morning regarding this, the consequences that Peter tells us are for false teachers. And the first is that judgment is reserved for those who deny Christ. One thing we have to recognize about false teaching is that it denies our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is not just an alternate way of viewing Christianity. That which diverges from the clear teachings of the gospel, the clear message of Jesus Christ and faith in Him, repentance towards God and faith in Christ alone for salvation, any message that diverges from that is a denial of our Savior. And that is what Peter says here says these false teachers that are coming into the church, that are bringing in these destructive heresies, are denying the supposed master who bought them. They come in and they, they put on a face. They come in hypocritically. They come in and, and play a part before the church, but in their lives, in their teachings, they deny Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons why their heresies are brought in secretly. No one's going to come to a Christian congregation, a Christian group, and say, I'm going to teach you to deny Christ. That's not Christianity. But yet false teachers come in and bring the same effect in the way in which they tell you to deny the teachings of Jesus Christ. 
We cannot accept Christ and deny His teachings. We cannot call ourselves a Christian and then turn away from the demands that Christ lays upon our lives. And so false teaching, when you boil it down to its most basic view, it is that which denies our Lord and Savior. And what does Jesus say about those who deny Him? Those who acknowledge Him before men, He will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But those who deny Him before men, what will He do before the Father? I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Such blasphemy against our Lord and Savior brings severe consequences. That's why, notice what Peter says in verse 3. Their condemnation that is determined from long ago is not, what? Idle. And their destruction is not asleep. They bring upon themselves, as he says in verse 1, swift destruction. Think of what the writer of Hebrews tells us about those who claim to know Christ, but yet deny Him with their lives. He speaks of how there will be much worse punishment deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. He who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and who has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge who? His people. It is so important for us to recognize that what the writer of Hebrews is saying, what he is pointing out, is not that God's judgment is only reserved for those who stand outside of the church, but God will come and judge those who claim, all those who claim to be His people. There is a judgment that comes before the household of God that will affect every person sitting in these seats today. Every person who walks through a church and claims to be a Christian, those who turn aside and turn away from Christ bring severe judgment upon themselves. And so he sums things up. It is what type of thing to fall into the hands of the living God? Fearful. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is amazing to see how Peter, later on in this passage, if we jump down to verses 20 through 21, he says something similar to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, he's speaking of these false teachers, and he's speaking about how they have come into the church, God's people. They're illegitimate. They're liars. They're bringing secret heresies in, but they have come into God's body. And it says that after they have escaped the defilements of the world, after they have come to a head knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they are again entangled in the defilements of the world, 
and they're overcome by him, it's, Peter says their last state has worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the commandment delivered to them. The holy commandment delivered to them. Do you understand the severity of the judgment that Peter is bringing out here? He's saying if you're going to come into the church, if you're going to come in and bring secretly destructive heresies, if you're going to exploit God's people for your own greedy gain, if you're going to pretend to be a part of this body of believers and you're going to bask in the knowledge of the gospel and you're going to Go, then you're going to yourself go back into the defilements of the world and teach others to do the same, it would have been better if you never became a part of God's people, if you never came and associated yourself with them. That's what Peter is saying. Now, we have to recognize that this is a part, this judgment that, Jesus spe- that, that Peter speaks of, that Jesus will bring, is a part of his role as the good shepherd. What does the hired hand do when they see the wolf coming? He flees. He says in John chapter 10, verse 12, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. That's what the unfaithful shepherd does. But then Jesus will go on to say that he is the what type of shepherd? The good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do for his sheep? Lays down his life. Jesus is not going to allow the wolves to come in and ravage the church. He's the good shepherd. Now we can read these verses verses 20 and 21. We can read what we read in Hebrews and it can, it can bring us to a point where maybe we think to ourselves, is it possible that we, have, we can lose our salvation? I mean, is, is that what is being taught in these passages? And the answer is clearly no. Peter's point about these false teachers is not that they were once Christians and then through their false teaching turned away from from that which they genuinely were, Peter's whole point is they were never Christians. They brought in these secret destructive heresies for their own gain, and Christ does not deal kindly with those who fleece His flock. And we know this good shepherd who gives His life for the sheep Those sheep hear His voice. He knows them. They follow Him. Notice what is described there of the genuine sheep. They listen to the voice of the shepherd. They know Christ. They don't deny Him. They know Him. They follow Him. They don't seek to subvert the claims of Christ's lordship upon their lives, they seek to live their lives completely in conformity to what Christ calls them to. Those who are genuine sheep 
hearing his voice, knowing him, following him, what does he grant to them? Eternal life. Is eternal life something that you have and lose? No. Because they will, when will they perish? Never. They will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of the good shepherd's hands. Not only that, but the Father who has given them to the good shepherd, to Christ, is greater than all. Is anyone capable of snatching God's sheep out of the Father's hand? No. So while Peter here gives us these messages, he shows us that those who associate with the church for their own advantage bring a more severe judgment upon themselves. Those who seek their own prosperity at the expense of God's people incur a certain and fearful judgment. And again, as Peter has said, it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness. Do you, do you hear those words? Those are fearful words that Peter gives here. Now, I think it's important for us to take warnings like this, and particularly what we saw in Hebrews, and it gives us the opportunity to examine our own selves. Are we genuine sheep? Or are we just going along because it's what we do? It's been our tradition to go to church and to be involved with a congregation. Do we do these things because we think it's somehow going to make us look right in other people's eyes. You know, you can do everything externally right. You can come to church Sunday morning. You can come to church Sunday evening. You can come to church on Wednesday evening. You can read your Bible every day. You can do all the stuff but in the midst of your doing, your confidence is placed not in Christ, but in yourself. You know what that is? A denial of Jesus Christ. To depend on yourself is to say, I don't need you, Christ. And that is hypocrisy. And so the warnings given here, we need to listen to. We need to examine our hearts. Are we genuine sheep? You know, Jesus tells us the parable of the sower and the seeds, and he speaks about how the seeds are thrown among thorns, and they begin to grow for a little bit, but then the thorns choke out the life of those seeds. And Jesus explains that the others, the ones sown among thorns, these they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of what? Riches. And let me just say, you realize that you're living today in the wealthiest nation on planet Earth. 
You don't think the deceitfulness of riches is all around you? And the desires for other things, when these things enter in, they become the thing that we live for. And what do they do to the Word? They choke it. And the person proves to be unfruitful. What does Jesus say? How will we know genuine believers? You'll know them by their what? Fruits. Jesus tells us in Luke 9, there's this man who comes and he says, I'm going to follow you, Lord, but, but first, let me say farewell to those at my home. And it, this is interesting because I think most of us would look at this and we would think, well, this is a reasonable request. I mean, he's going to uproot his life. He should be able to go and say goodbye to his family. And what does Jesus say? No one who puts, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is what? Fit for the kingdom. So we need to recognize, are we putting our hand to the plow? But then do we want to hang on with the other hand to the things of this world? In particular, one of the things that the false teachers were teaching was that you could have and believe in Jesus, but he wasn't really coming back, so there really were no consequences for your sinful actions. So go out there and live it up. Go, to, go and fellowship on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day with the church, and the rest of the week you can be involved in temple prostitution, you can be involved in, in, in sexual immorality, you can be involved in, in idolatry. It doesn't matter because Jesus isn't coming back. That was the message, uh, one of the messages of these false teachers that then taught, go ahead and indulge in sinfulness. That is holding on to Christ with one hand and holding on to the world with the other. And no one who does that is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus demands not part of who you are. He demands how much of you? All. And if we, if we want to hang on to the world in any respect, we are those who are saying, I will have so much of Jesus, but then I will deny Him. So judgment is reserved for those who deny Christ. Secondly, we see that judgment is certain for those who deny Christ. Look with me again in verse 3. It says, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. And then Peter speaks particularly of the fact that their condemnation that is determined from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Now, why would Peter need to make this statement? Particularly when he said in verse 1 that they're bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And I think the reason for this is to remind us that God's judgment is certain for those who deny Christ, because we can be tempted to think it's not. Why would I say that? Well, notice what he says about these false teachers. They are going to be popular. He says that many will follow their sensuality. They're going to be popular. False teachers are going to be the ones who fill up arenas. Their churches are going to have thousands of people that walk in the doors. False teachers are going to be the ones who seemingly prosper. And boy, things really haven't changed today that much, have they? 
You look at the false teachers today, and they're the ones filling up arenas. They're the ones that, that are having the, the multi-million dollar uh, facilities that they have for their, for their ministries. They're the ones that have the multi-million dollar mansions, the private jets that seemingly need to not care about money at all. And it seems like they're prospering. And then you come to churches that preach the Word of God, and are they seemingly growing? They're shrinking. It seems like truth, clearly proclaimed, is not very popular today, is it? Well, it's been like that since Jesus came and even before that. Truth, real truth, biblical truth has never been popular. But what can happen is we can become discouraged when we see the false teachers prospering. Jeremiah experienced this. And Jeremiah was sent to God's own people. Jeremiah preached, you know, not a a message of love and acceptance. He preached a message of judgment and discipline from God. So much so that, I mean, it's almost comical in some ways when you read the book of Jeremiah and you see him responding like, really, Lord, do I have to say this again? He gets wearied with pronouncing violence and destruction against those who stand against God. He gets wearied by it because he knows people don't like to hear that message. And so he does this, and he's calling God's people to turn from their idolatry, to repent from it, to turn to God, or else there will be severe consequences. And in Jeremiah chapter 12, after he's done this and said this, he he brings up a complaint before the Lord. He says, I know you're righteous. Righteous are you, O Lord. In other words, he's stating his full belief that God acts righteously. And his faith in that reality is not changed by his complaint, but yet he still brings up the complaint. He says, I know you're righteous when I complain to you, yet I would plead my my case before you. So he comes before God and he says, listen, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Now again, Jeremiah is saying there's going to be destruction and consequences for your sinful actions, and it seems like for the wicked, they're doing well. They're enjoying life. They're living it up. Jeremiah is hated. He's beaten. He's he's cast off by people. He says, why do all who are treacherous thrive? And then he says this, listen, it looks like you're planting them. And they're taking root. They're growing and producing fruit. It seems like you're near in their mouth and far from their heart. And so from Jeremiah's perspective, there's this this dissonance in the message he's proclaiming and the fact that God will bring judgment, and yet the wicked seem to be prospering. And that same dissonance continues today, doesn't it? Why does wickedness appear to prosper? But Peter is reminding his Readers, that even though false teachers may grow fat and prosper from their exploitation of the church, that their lies seemingly bring them all this wondrous stuff, Peter reminds them, look, their condemnation is not idle. 
and their destruction is not asleep. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, our sinful actions, because of our hard and impenitent hearts, end up storing up what? Wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So judgment is reserved for those who deny Christ. Judgment is certain for those who deny Christ. Then, as Peter speaks about this certainty of this judgment, he then speaks of God's pattern of judgment on those who deny Christ. And we see him giving uh, three examples here, and then a fourth one to sort of wrap things up of the fact that God judges sin. Now, again, this is not a popular message in this day and age. We don't like to hear, the world doesn't like to hear that God is going to bring any consequences for people's sinful actions. And yet, throughout the Scriptures, it is abundantly clear, God judges sin. And as we've seen, God severely judges those who exploit His people. And He speaks of these three examples. He speaks in verse 4, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. The first group that Peter speaks of are the angels who sinned, these rebellious angels. These angels, Jude describes in Jude chapter 6, as not keeping their position of authority, the way that God had designed them, but they left that, and as a result of turning away from God's authority, They've been kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the great day, the day of judgment. Now, there's some debate as to exactly what Peter is referring to here. He may be referring to the initial rebellion of the angels and how these angels turned with Satan as their leader, seeking, Satan seeking to take the place of God, being cast out of heaven and being cast down as a result of of that rebellion. It also may be that this is a reference to Genesis chapter 6, which also makes some sense because of the next group that he speaks of, these angels who left their estate and seemingly inhabited through demon possession men so that they could fulfill sexual desires that way. That's what likely is going on in Genesis chapter 6. That is a weird passage, and we're not going to get detracted by that one today. If you want to hear more about that, Ask somebody who knows a lot more about it. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it, it's, it's quite, quite the passage. And the stark reality is that God judged these spiritual beings. They're cast into gloomy darkness. They're kept under chains until the judgment. And then he says in verse 5, If he did not spare the ancient world... But preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, when seven, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So they, we see the rebellious angels as the first example of the pattern of judgment. Secondly, the world of wickedness. What was it that evoked God's judgment upon this world? Well, Genesis 6, 5 and 6 tells us, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that Every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only what? Evil, how often? Continually. 
And so the Lord regrets that he makes man on the earth and it grieves him to his heart. And so Peter is pointing to this. And what does God do with the world of wickedness? He annihilates it. He takes it out completely, sending a flood over the entire world. And then we see in verse 6, the third example, the city of debauchery. Verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. And then notice here we see what all three of these things have been doing, but particularly Sodom and Gomorrah, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. See, when you read these stories of the, in the Old Testament, when you see God bringing such judgment upon sin, it is a pattern that is given to show you how God deals with the ungodly. And He deals with them with wrath. And throughout all this, there is one final thing that is coming clearly through it, and that is that there is a final judgment. In fact, this entire section is bookended with this point of the day of judgment. Again, we can see this in verse 3. The condemnation from long ago and the destruction that is going to come, that is a reference to this final judgment. And again, he speaks of how he's keeping the angels that left their estates when they sinned He's kept them in this gloomy darkness in chains until what? The judgment. And then if we jump down to verse um, 9, he says that God knows how to keep the righteous under punishment until what? The day of judgment. Let us not misunderstand at all what Peter is saying, what the Scriptures are saying. God will stand on His throne. God will sit on His throne. Christ will be preeminent and He will judge the world in righteousness. This is unavoidable. It is inevitable for those who reject Christ. And so... Peter here is reminding us that these false teachers face a severe consequence for their false teaching. In fact, they will be those who come to Christ. And as as he says in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, notice what he says. Will there just be a few on that day of judgment? What does he say? Many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will look at them and he will say to them and declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And notice what he calls them. Workers of what? Lawlessness. Just as these false teachers will teach 
defiling passions and sinful indulgence, those who teach such things will stand before Christ, and if they persist in that error, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so as we read in our scripture reading, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This final day of judgment, Matthew 25, 41, begins with saying that the Son of Man, the Son of God, will sit on His throne and judge His people. But Peter does not leave us with only harsh condemnation in this passage. And there is a great contrast in that there is certain hope for true pilgrims. Notice what he says as he goes through and speaks of these, this pattern. And he speaks of the angels who sinned. And then he speaks of the flood that came upon the ungodly But it speaks of how he did not spare the ancient world, but yet what did he do? He preserved who? Noah. And what is Noah? Noah is described here as a herald of what? Righteousness. He's not a false teacher. He's a genuine believer. He's someone who called people to repentance, called them to faith by coming into the ark. They all rejected him except his family. But nonetheless, he preached the truth. And he was what? Preserved. He was saved from the judgment. And then he speaks of Lot. He speaks of how he rescued Lot. And then he describes Lot in ways, I think, that were very descriptive of us today. How many of you here are greatly distressed by the wicked conduct of our world? It's bad. The world is, is, has chosen destruction and death through its ways. It's turned back on the most basic truths of the way in which God has created us. And that's distressing. We just, this is July 2nd, we just finished Pride Month. I was distressed over and over and over again with things I saw on commercials and things I saw in the media. And so we can focus on that. And we can find ourselves wringing our hands all the time. Oh, look at how bad our society is. But that's not what Peter's focus is here. What does God do for Lot? Rescues him. And so there is this great hope that we, like Lot, righteous people, made righteous in Christ, living among the sinful world every day, having our righteous soul tormented because of their lawless deeds, can recognize the truth that this is not the end. God knows how to save the godly. Hallelujah, God knows how to save the godly. And so there's wonderful hope that we can have that if we are genuine pilgrims, that we 
Do not fear the day of judgment. We do not fear God's judgment today upon these false teachers. We can hope in a sure salvation in Him. Peter's conclusion is that if God saved Noah, a true teacher of righteousness, if He saved Lot, who was vexed by the sinful conduct of his surroundings, then He certainly knows how to save us from our trials. What a hopeful message. And I love how the gospel is always balanced with the bad news and then the good news. And so the message that we need to take away from this today is that are we genuine believers? Are we genuine pilgrims? Make our calling and election sure. Examine our hearts. Realize that we can't be living lives that deny our Lord and Savior. If we deny Him by our words, if we deny Him by our actions, Christ denies us. He never knew, never knew us. Are you here today and are you a pretender to the faith? Or are you genuine in your confidence in Christ? Ezekiel speaks of how God Himself will be a shepherd for His people. Notice what he says here. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I Myself will search for My sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is coming among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out My sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Oh, that that would be today. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing and in rich pasture they shall feed on the mountain of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. And I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. Those that fleece the flock of God, I will what? destroy. I will feed them in justice. And then notice what he says. As for you, my flock, says the Lord God, behold, I judge between, notice what he says, sheep and sheep. Between rams and male goats. It is not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and drink and a drink of clean water that you must muddy the rest with the water with your feet. He's speaking of sheep that are being brazen and bold and, and selfish. He says, Must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, says the Lord God to them, Behold, 
I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and a shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns. Till you have scattered them abroad. Notice what Christ does. What does he do for his genuine flock? I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And I, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am Yahweh. The Lord, I have spoken. What a wondrous good shepherd we have. He will drive away the false wolves and will rescue 